Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. This is Jenny Allen, and you are listening to the Made for This podcast. Thanks to Hooked on Phonics for supporting Made for This. Hooked on Phonics helps kids learn to read with their unique process of using hands-on learning materials shipped to your home every month in combination with a digital reading app. To get your first month for just $1, go to hookedonphonics.com slash made for this. And now here is Jenny and Sam Storms. guys, I'm excited today to have Dr. Sam Storms with us. He has been instrumental in my life personally, as well as my family's life. We have read his book, Practicing the Power, and it is so good because what he does is he takes, you know, those of us that grew up, which I did in a very uh, conservative place theologically, and he adds to that, you know what, there is also power in the spirit of God. And those of us that are not familiar with that or have words for that or language with that, maybe didn't grow up in that, he does such an excellent job of biblically and theologically building out the Holy Spirit and the power of God we miss and the authority that we miss because we just don't delve into that, whether it's because of fear or whatever else. You changed my daughter's life. She read your book, and it just is so fun to have you on today. So thank you for coming. Well, it's a delight to be with you. I've been looking forward to this. Okay, so let's dive in. I want to talk about today what we're going to be talking about is this idea that there is power in the presence of God and that we are not stuck in patterns of sin, that we actually have been given probably more authority and power than we realize. So let's start with those that might be, feel cynical or feel like, gosh, is this about to get way too charismatic for us? Let's start with your story of just how this really shifted for you, because you came from a pretty conservative background. I did. Um, I was raised Southern Baptist, went to Dallas Theological Seminary, pastored for many, many years uh, without, uh, you know, I had a, I think I had a theological or theoretical belief in the reality of the supernatural realm, but nothing uh, of a real practical, tangible experience with it. And I tell this, uh, this story in the opening chapter of my book, Understanding Spiritual Warfare, when I had my first, what I would just simply call a tangible, empirical, almost physical encounter with the supernatural realm, with the demonic. Uh, obviously, I'd always believed in the reality of demons, uh, Paul talks about spiritual warfare in Ephesians 6, but I had an encounter in, I think it was September of 1993, in which I actually felt, and I mean by that literally, tangibly, physically felt the energy and the power of the enemy, and it was through an encounter with a lady who was seriously demonized to come to a conference at our church. People who have never experienced this, you know, they're kind of shaking their heads and thinking, you're just weird, Sam, and I that may well be true, but until you've actually experienced it yourself, talk about it all the all the time, you can debate it. 
but until you've actually felt it and experienced it directly, it doesn't really resonate with a lot of people. And what happened, basically, I'll just be very short in my explanation. As this lady approached me, I felt this wave of energy. It would just felt like um, it felt like liquid air. The only way I know how to explain it, that was dark. I, I immediately became disoriented. I couldn't think. I couldn't put two words together. I felt nauseated. It was overwhelming. It was so tangibly real. I had a friend, thankfully, who pulled me aside and we prayed and I kind of came out of it, but it was, it was shocking to me because here I was, I'd been a pastor by that time for almost 20 years and had never had this kind of direct encounter with the demonic. And it opened my eyes in, in many ways. And it also, I think, alerted me. I think one of the reasons why God allowed that to happen to me was he, I think, imparted to me at that time what I believe is the gift of discerning the spirits, which is how do we know the difference? How do we know uh, the difference between the human spirit, the demonic spirit, or just emotional brokenness? And I have since that time had a few more instances in which this kind of uh, experience came on me and enabled me to discern the presence of demonic activity. So it was a it was an eye opening, um, life changing experience. And again, people will say, "Oh, so so now your th- beliefs are based on your experience?" No, this experience no. simply confirmed the right. truth of what I already believed to be the case. Yeah, and for any of you listening that that you're here because you want to be encouraged, but you don't even know where you fall in your belief about God, I just want to say. We do believe some crazy things. Like the Bible does spell out some things that that are not easy to compartmentalize in our, you know, human understanding. And one of those is angels and demons. And and I would say, you know, I learned we had a whole class at DTS. I also attended DTS. We have a very similar story. I attended DTS and there was a whole class on angels. And and so there was definitely an affirmation that the spiritual supernatural realm existed. It's biblical. You can't get away from it. But what to do with it and how to fight it wasn't really trained in that. And then same as you, the same thing happened where I was confronted with a woman who I believe cursed me and and then was screaming in the hallway while I was preaching. And the lights in this mega church go out. The sound goes out while she's with a security guard in the hallway. And and what it felt like to me was the devil had overplayed his hand. And and I saw, oh gosh, this is all real. It was the same kind of encounter. And it really did light my faith aflame at first. But I do believe there were repercussions from that encounter that I had to learn how to fight. And so what we're talking about today, some of you might find crazy and uncomfortable. What I would say is just read your Bibles. Like this is throughout. And what I love about Jesus as I've studied this is he does not blink or flinch. It's just a matter of fact. There's demons and there's warfare and he's not afraid of it and he's more powerful than it. So how do we know whether, let's just go to the real heart of what probably people are thinking right now after what you shared. How do we know if what we're facing is just a bad day or there are bigger forces at play? Well, most people like this answer, but sometimes we can't know. It's very difficult. This calls for a lot of discernment. It calls for a lot of prayer. It calls for uh, familiarity with scripture, being able to apply biblical categories to things that we're encountering, that we're seeing. Um, I, I mean, I'll just give you another example that I share in the book about my wife's experience. Early in our marriage, um, she 
made an inner vow. The only other language we know, we didn't use that language then, but a vow basically that um, she couldn't trust me. She couldn't trust God. And the enemy used that as an open door into her life. And she lived a very godly Christian life. We had a good marriage, but it was really crippling in many respects in terms of her understanding of her identity. She, she, she struggled with shame. Uh, intimacy in our relationship wasn't what it should have been. And she had a powerful encounter with the Spirit of God in which through repentance, re- repenting from unforgiveness, and uh, rejecting the inner vow that she had made, she was set free. And I think she was set free from demonic oppression. Some people may want to call it demonization. I don't like the language of demon possession, but certainly oppression and and bondage. And it was absolutely life-changing and transforming. It it, it reversed um, our the nature of our marriage, the nature of my public ministry. And there's just simply no other way to describe it other than, I remember afterwards, uh, we were in the car together, and I remember she kept putting her hands over her ears. And I said, honey, what are you doing? And she heard the look in her eye was amazing. She said, it's gone. I said, what's gone? She said, that voice I've been hearing in my head for the last 17 years wow. is gone. And it was so radically mm-hmm. transformative that she had been set free from this attack of the enemy. I know that, like you said, people hear this and they may want to write us off immediately. And I understand why. There are some fanatical extremists out there who have brought reproach on the name of Christ and on the name of the gospel because of their unbiblical and uh, manipulative tactics. And they've done it for self-serving purposes. And so people say, well, oh, if that's what you mean by spiritual warfare, (laughs) I can do without it. And unfortunately, I was a part of that mindset. I allowed fear and the uh, the, the, the concern that I was going to be uh, associated with people of ill repute keep me from seeing the reality of what the Bible was talking about. I mean, when Paul says in Ephesians 6, and, and every time I say this, I stop saying, we're talking about Paul, a man who was constantly opposed by false teachers, beaten repeatedly, imprisoned, stoned, uh, ridiculed undermined by human beings. And yet that man says, my battle isn't with human flesh. My battle isn't with human beings. It's with the powers of this present fallen world. That is simply stunning. When you think about what he endured at the hands of flesh and blood, he said, they're not my primary enemy. There's something beneath and behind them that is even more formidable and even more directly involved in the battle that I'm facing. Mm. And yet we're afraid to talk about it. You know, one of my stories is that I was in middle school and I remember the youth pastor saying, you don't need to talk about the devil too much. And I remember going, okay, so that's not good to talk about the devil and people shouldn't talk about the devil. And then you read things like Ephesians where it says there's dark cosmic forces coming against us. And I'm like, well, we should probably talk a little bit about the devil if if he's real and we truly believe the Bible, which says that there are forces coming against us. So we aren't supposed to be afraid. Spiritual warfare is real. And and probably a lot of people right now are going, is that why I've struggled with depression for all my life? Like they're sitting there kind of spiraling and going, I hadn't thought about it being demonic. And do I need to be scared in the dark alone? Like what would you say to that person that right now is starting to spin as we're talking about this? Yeah. I'm going to take off on that word spin (laughs) 
because a lot of people think when we talk about spiritual warfare, we mean Linda, we mean Linda Blair's head spinning in the movie The Exorcist. For those yeah. who haven't seen it, just take my word for it. Don't go watch it. And they think, oh, spiritual warfare, that's people like the Gathering Demoniac who had more than perhaps 6,000 demons in him, or Mary Magdalene who had seven demons uh, that Jesus drove out from her. And they think of horrendous occultic behavior, and they don't realize what you just said is true, that the enemy is not necessarily the cause of our sin, but he will certainly intensify it and aggravate it. That's what Paul means in Ephesians 4. He talks about something as simple as anger, unresolved anger with another person as giving a place or an opportunity for the devil to enter in and to begin to aggravate and to intensify. It's like the, the, the flesh causes the fire to burn, but Satan blows on it and can pour gasoline on it, if I can use that analogy. So yeah, I mean, we, we encounter regularly people in our church and our ministry here who are struggling with shame. They cannot break free of the feeling of being utterly worthless and having lost all sense of dignity as a, as a valuable image bearer. People who are suffering from prolonged bouts of depression and just a loss of any sense of identity as a child of God. And I'm not saying it's because they're demonized, but I'm saying that these false beliefs, this failure to understand who we are in Christ can be a tool or an instrument by which the enemy says, yeah, that's right. And now let me suggest things to you that reinforce it. You know, Paul says in Ephesians 6, I'm looking at it right now, he talks about the flaming darts of the evil one. You know, I've had people say, Sam, why is it that even when I'm watching and listening to you preach, I have these vile images just pass through my mind, these, these wicked, perverse thoughts that I can't seem to break free from? Where does that come from? And I'm saying, well, if you're not doing anything to cultivate that in your private life, it's probably one of the fiery darts of the enemy. And what he does is he puts those thoughts and images in our mind and then works to convince us that we're to blame for them and that we are worthless in the sight of God and unqualified for the kingdom of Christ because of them. And this could we could speak to this across the spectrum of so many human struggles and so many human problems. So again, it's not so much that that there's a, a, a demonic spirit for every sin or a devil, a demon behind every bush. But you can rest assured the enemy is going to do everything he can to exploit our own sinful inclinations and to convince us uh, that God is not good enough or great enough to set us free and to, and to enable us to live the kind of life that Jesus came to give us. I think there was a lie picked up by many of us that when you become a Christian or when you certainly are following God in a really full, rich way, you're protected from the enemy, that the enemy's not going to bother you or come for you, that there's protection in your life and you're exempt from this. So this is really talking when we talk about demonic warfare, that we're talking about people that are struggling with addiction, struggling with, you know, really deep, dark sins. But you're saying that the Christians are, are getting the fiery darts. The people that are following God with all their heart are still under attack. Absolutely. You know, Peter said the, the devil prowls about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. He's writing that to Christians. So we have to remember, you know, I think of little things like uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, where Paul says, listen, Satan has a scheme for your church. He has a strategy. He wants to divide and conquer. So we have to come to grips with the reality of this war. But here's the thing I would remind all of everybody watching this. This may be the most important passage in the Bible on this subject. 
for Christians to hear. It's Luke chapter 10, verses 17 through 20. It's the story where Jesus sends out the 72, and these are not apostles. These aren't elders. These aren't seminary grads. These are average followers of Jesus, anonymous, none of them are named. And he says, go out and proclaim the kingdom. They come back and they say, wow, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Now it's in your name, not subject to us, but in your name. And then Jesus says this. He says, I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. And I have given you authority over all the power of the enemy, and no harm will come to you. Christians don't know the reality of that. I I, I mean, here we are on this side of the cross, this side of the empty tomb, this side of Pentecost, with an even greater authority than those who existed before the cross and Pentecost. And we have this authority in Christ through him identified with him who's seated at the right hand of the Father, beneath whose feet all principalities and powers have been subjected. And I come across Christians all the time who live in fear. They said, I I don't know what to do with this individual, or somebody manifests in a very overt way. Oh, let's go get somebody who's been to seminary to cast the demon out. And they don't realize average born-again believers who have been given the authority by Christ himself through the power of the Spirit to command that freedom become that experience of the person who's being oppressed. We have that authority in Christ, and I fear that most Christians are oblivious to it. They just don't understand it. They, they've never seen it in action. They need to read Luke 10, verses 17 through 20, and say, that he's talking about me there. Yeah, I would say the words spiritual authority are fresh to me. I did not learn what they meant until in the last few years of my life. And it's probably the single most freeing two words that that I've ever found as someone who regularly feels like I get stuck in seasons of oppression and attack. And, and specifically just finished, you know, released a book called Get Out of Your Head where I talk about that. And, and one of the verses that I focused on in that book was Second Corinthians 10, that we are given divine weapons to destroy strongholds and that we're not fighting the flesh, but we're fighting the spirit. And so there was some fundamental understanding that if we were going to go about life as believers, that we would have knowledge of the enemy, that it, that it would be knowledge of a spiritual enemy, and that there would be weapons that we would be equipped with to fight with. What do you see those weapons being in our life? Like how do we just the everyday lay person, what you're talking about right now, what are those weapons and how do they fight back? Well, the principal weapon, Paul says in Ephesians 6, is the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, uh, the Scripture, speaking forth Scripture. I, I think the most powerful weapon that I see uh, made use of by people who are suffering demonic oppression is when I ask them to read Scripture aloud, to mm. read, read Colossians 1 uh, or Colossians 2 verses 13 through 15 or uh, read Ephesians 6, or read the Luke 10 passage, read Ephesians 1, 18 to the end of the chapter, and you begin to see the power of the Word of God uh, when a person embraces that as true and when they articulate it. Uh, so that's the, that's the place to begin. I think making use of the spiritual gifts that God has granted us, a variety of gifts that are described by Paul in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14 and elsewhere. I think another principal weapon is a restored understanding of who we are in Christ. I don't think I have ever dealt with somebody who was suffering demonic oppression, 
who didn't have a distorted and warped view of who they are. They have no real sense that I'm, I'm a son of God. I'm a daughter of God. I'm a child of the most high. I am identified with the risen Christ. He's been seated in the heavenlies. I have been seated there together with him. And as a result, they lack the assurance of salvation. They question their worth and their value in the kingdom of God. So I think the written word of God, the power of the spirit through his gifts, a renewed grasp of who we are in Jesus. Mm, uh, that is so central. As long as you are convinced, not just that you're unqualified, but you're disqualified from service in the kingdom of Christ, uh, the enemy is going to have you right where he wants you. So I think all of these are primary. And of course, we could spend a, a long time going through Ephesians 6, the armor, the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the shield of faith, uh, all of these things. Uh, you know, the, Paul talks there about persevering in all manner of prayer. So these are a variety of the, of the things that we can use, the, uh, the weapons, so to speak, with which we have been invested by Christ to push back against the enemy. What about protection over our homes, our minds, our families? What do you encourage people to do if, if they're listening right now and they're like, man, I, I want to be sure I'm on the offensive here, that I'm not just playing defense? What does that look like in your home and your family? Well, when our when our daughters were younger and living at home, uh, we would go out of our way to pray over specific areas of the house. I mean, over the entire house, we would invite the Holy Spirit to make not only our own personal bodies and our own souls His dwelling place, His temple, but that He would manifest His presence throughout our entire home. You know, I know this sounds strange to some people. Uh, we would actually anoint um, the entryways to our homes and to our bedrooms with oil, just oil. Again, nothing magical about it. We're not talking about some magician's trick. We're talking about oil as symbolic of consecrating something for the purposes of the spirit uh, and, and commanding the demonic presence to leave. Uh, so we would pray over our children uh, as we now even pray over our grandchildren we would speak truth to them, remind them of who they are in Jesus, pour the word of God into their lives. Uh, we fill, one of the things that, that I have done and we have done as a family is we filled our car and our home with worship. Uh, constantly uh, songs that, that exalt Christ, that declare the triumph um, that he has achieved over sin and death. So these are just some of the very, and again, this probably isn't new to people who are listening to this. They're not saying, wow, that's never heard that before. You may have heard it before, but you have to act on it. You have to do it. You have to spend time in prayer, seeking the heart of God and speaking the truth over yourself, your home, your family, your children, your grandchildren. We are super excited to partner with Hooked on Phonics this season because I am right in the thick of this with my almost kindergartner. I can't believe it. And I'm just trying to reinforce skills that he is learning and building and Hooked on Phonics is doing that for us. Hooked on Phonics helps your kids learn to read with their unique process of hands-on learning materials shipped to your home every single month with their digital reading app. So to start off, you get unlimited access to this reading app, and then to reinforce what they're learning and building, you can use their workbooks that are sent to you monthly to give your kid hands-on practice. We've partnered with Hooked on Phonics, and they're offering your first month for just $1. Go to hookedonphonics.com slash for this. 
It has been really great helping Gray this summer just get ready for kindergarten and build that foundation of reading and the love of reading. And so Hooked on Phonics has helped us do that because he can play with their interactive games on the app and then what we do together with the workbooks and the lessons and even the little stickers that he loves to do, it all builds on what he's learned. What's even better is Hooked on Phonics lessons take like 20 minutes or less. They include discussion questions to increase your child's reading comprehension and their storybooks are written specifically to build their confidence. So give your child the confidence that reading brings with Hooked on Phonics. To get your first month for just $1, go to hookedonphonics.com slash made for this. That's just $1 for your first month by going to hookedonphonics.com slash made for this. bet a lot of people listening actually, yes, they, they would say, I do those things, but maybe not for the sake of spiritual warfare. They do those things because they should, or it feels like the right thing to do. But to do it, realizing we're facing an enemy, that is a different posture, right? Like, I think that's the power of being aware of this and being biblical about this is we actually stand up with that authority and we fight back and we don't just lay down and pretend it's not happening. And I think that's that's my hope from this interview and hopefully from all of my ministry and work is just that you all would see the power of God to help you fight back darkness because the darkness is real and it is overwhelming sometimes. And it does feel like right now the darkness is winning, right? When you look out in the world. Yeah. yeah. Many cases that's true. Just a, as a point of encouragement uh, to your listeners, uh, in my book, Understanding Spiritual Warfare, I have, I think, 17 testimonies from men and women uh, that we have taken through a process of inner healing and deliverance here at Bridgeway. Uh, We have an entire curriculum um, that we do that. It's eight weeks, two hours each week. And the stories are so different. Some people who are struggling with shame, others with sexual addictions, others with with feelings of, of rejection, others with depression, others with physical symptoms, many of whom were healed physically in the process of going through this time of inner healing. And the reason why I included those stories in there, and and I'm getting feedback from people who read the book, they say that's the most encouraging part of the book, is that I can take these biblical principles that you lay out in the book, and I can see them applied in, in the lives of real people, bringing about real transformation in their marriages in their relationships in the church, with friends, with family. We've just seen remarkable stories of, uh, of healing, of people being set free, of people entering into the fullness of the abundant life that Christ came to give. And it's, it's been really encouraging. I think those stories alone um, are, are worth telling. And um, they're real life people. I got the written permission from every one of them. <laughs> they wrote the stories. I didn't write it for them. They wrote them themselves. And they are, they are truly uh, encouraging and life-changing. And they're Christ-exalting. Jesus and the gospel are at the center of each and every one of them. For the person that's listening that is just cynical, like, I don't think anybody got physically healed from prayer. Like, what would you say to that person that is doubting or just feels like, oh, this is kind of weird? Are they about to start talking about snake handling? Like, what's next, you know? <laughs> yeah. Well, first of all, I think each individual needs to analyze or analyze look deeply into their own soul and say, why do I feel that way? What is it that has led me to embrace a somewhat cynical or hyper-skeptical view? Is it because of something I've seen in scripture? 
Is it because of something I've seen on TV or the internet when somebody acted in a manipulative and self-serving way? The real issue here is what are you going to allow to govern and shape your life? Is it going to be the truth of scripture and the principles it articulates, or is it going to be uh, the ridicule of the non-Christian world, or maybe even the excesses and the fanaticism of those professing Christians who have really gone to an extreme and taken this beyond biblical boundaries? Um, so again, I don't know that, you know, I, I just have to be, I'll just be honest with you. When I moved from, um, what we call a cessationist view of spiritual gifts to believing that all the gifts are operative and the, the spirit is working supernaturally in our lives, the major obstacle I had to overcome wasn't the Bible. It wasn't that all of a sudden I had different interpretations of texts. The biggest obstacle was fear. I was afraid of being identified with fanaticism. I was afraid of people pointing the finger at me and saying, oh, you're, you're like that guy who takes off his coat and throws it at people on the platform or, or people who, you know, who, who claim to have these remarkable encounters and, and uh, heavenly visitations when maybe they really didn't. It was getting over that element of fear and anxiety about what's it going to do to my reputation? What are people going to think about me? Rather than dealing with the what the scriptures actually teach uh, concerning the truth and the reality of these things. You know, I, I think we're headed into times where we've got to be people of spirit and truth. And it feels like there's not typically people in churches that, that really rely on both in a big way. It's not that, you know, most churches would say, of course we espouse the truth. And most churches would, you know, that are super conservative would say, of course we espouse the spirit. Like we're not saying the spirit of God doesn't move today. What would you say though, is the fullness of that? What what do we need to look for? What is what is the evidence to you that that someone is truly moving fully in spirit and truth? Are there any checks that we need to look at rather than, you know, we don't want to become fanatics and we don't want to swing away from truth and we don't want to swing away from believing the supernatural and spirit as well. But how do we stay on the rails per se? Biblical. Yeah, I'll, I'll give you an example. It comes from uh, my theological hero, Jonathan Edwards, First Great Awakening, you know, incredible, powerful spiritual manifestations. Oftentimes people would fall down in his meetings and they'd have to leave them there and come back 24 hours later and find them still there. And Edwards said something. He said, in effect, I don't really care about why or how you fell down. I only care if you're different when you get up. In other words, he was saying spiritual fruit. Measure the reality of the Spirit's power by the fruit that is produced in, in, in the individual's life. So when somebody claims to have had an encounter with the Spirit or they've heard the voice of God, my question is, are you more like Jesus as a result of that? Is there greater humility in your heart? Do you have a greater spirit of service and sacrifice for the sake of others? Have you fallen more in love with Scripture or less in love? Do you have a greater zeal for the lost in evangelism? Do you love your spouse better? Uh, are, you, are you more patient with people who aggravate you? Is the person of Christ more precious to your soul now than before you had this encounter or this supernatural experience? So it's always, what, what's the fruit? What is the transformation that has come about in you that would give me reason to believe that you had a genuine encounter with the Spirit of God? So again, it, it's the same thing with any encounter, falling down, uh, hearing God's voice, exercising a spiritual gift, being prayed for, whatever. How are you different? 
in the aftermath? How have you been changed? Are you more like Jesus, more in love with Jesus, more committed to the truth of his word? I think there's a lot of confusion that surrounds a conversation like this. And there's probably, I'm trying to imagine the questions that people are having right now as they're listening. And one that I think of is it feels like sometimes for people that maybe aren't as comfortable in these conversations that there's some level of Christianity that they're missing out on, that there's some place that everybody else that's talking about, you know, their experience with God in this way, they're living in some realm and I'm not there. And that just sets another almost legalistic performance standard in their mind that they can't reach. What would you say to someone that might be feeling that way right now? Like just almost, oh gosh, are you telling me my religion or or my faith or where I am with God is not enough? You've raised an excellent point. And this has created massive problems in the broader body of Christ. It's the old have and have not mentality. First class and second class Christians. Oh, you're filled with the spirit, but you're not. And, and that's a tragic development. And it's it's very unfortunate. I mean, just, I think that's why Paul wrote what he did in 1 Corinthians 12 verses uh, 13 and following, where he talked about how one part of the body of Christ, because of their gifts, says, I don't have need of the other. It, it, it's sad that this has developed. And I think what I say to people, if somebody ever says to me, Sam, oh, so now you believe in the reality of spiritual gifts and uh, you've had encounters in the, with with spiritual warfare, and you understand your authority in Christ. So now you're saying you're a better Christian than I am. My mm. response is absolutely not. I'm simply saying I'm a better Christian than I used to be. Mm. The issue of uh, of comparison isn't between me and you. I mean, Paul says we are not to compare ourselves one with another. The comparison is between what I used to be and what I now am by the grace of God working in me through the Spirit through his gifts, and through a deeper understanding of the reality of the supernatural realm. So uh, again, are we ever going to move beyond the place where Christians are judging one another and uh, claiming to have where somebody else has not? Probably not. But I hope that people will realize uh, that the issue isn't whether or not I'm better than you or you're better than me. The issue is, are we individually making greater progress in growing in conformity to the image of Jesus. Yeah, that's good. I I would say to put people at ease too, ask God, like, is there anything about you that you want me to know that, that you could increase my faith in? And that's true for every one of us, right? Every one of us has aspects of God that if we pray that prayer, we're going to learn more this year, hopefully, than we knew last year about his character and who he is in his fullness. I would just say the unique thing about the topic of gifts and spiritual warfare that we're talking about, the unique thing around that is that there is so much fear attached to it. So we can start to compartmentalize and to compare and to feel like, gosh, this is the place of arrival when really we're all just trying our best to know and follow God based on the scriptures. Sam, what would you say to to someone who is craving the freedom that that your wife found, craving the freedom that even my my story represents of just being in bondage to something and experiencing that freedom and they don't know the first step and they don't know what to do next well without being without being overly simplistic i would say it begins with repentance it begins with coming clean before god and just saying lord search me and know me as david prayed in psalm 139 and laying before the lord 
bearing your heart, saying, Lord, this is what I've done. Forgive me. Help me to, to, to walk in, in greater conformity to the image of Jesus. So I think it's repentance. I think it's humility. More times than not, I find that the single greatest hindrance to men and women moving forward in their growth in Jesus is unforgiveness. They're harboring grudges and bitterness and resentment toward people who've wounded them and hurt them. And I think a lot of that is due to the fact that people don't know what forgiveness means. I mean, I have a whole chapter in the book on what forgiveness is not and what it is. And we have this idea in our minds about what forgiveness means. And we say, well, I could never do that. And I don't want to be a hypocrite, so I won't forgive that person. And unforgiveness is a massive barrier to really making progress and experiencing the freedom in, in these many areas. So I think those are the those are the essential things. And then I think also, once again, really digging deeply into the word of God and asking the question, who does God say that I am? Not what do my parents told me that I am, or what did my teachers accuse me of being, or what did my peers laugh at me because of, but who does God say that I am? And then crying out to the Spirit consistently in prayer, Lord, indelibly impress on my heart precisely the truth of who you say I am. Let me know it. Let me feel it. Let me act on the basis of it and not in accordance with the lies that I've been told and that I've believed all my life. It's so powerful. And I would say on that last one, I mean, if you read Ephesians 1, you see just in those first few verses, you see an incredible inheritance, an incredible identity. And yet there's times we can read those verses and just not experience it, right? This is our reality. How would you encourage someone to pray that wants desperately to believe what God says about them, but they feel stuck and they can't move forward, even if they read the truth? Well, we've, we've touched a little bit on a, on a little bit of the answer already in our time together. And that is, you need to understand Satan will do everything he can to blind your eyes and to darken your mind and to convince you that what you're reading in scripture is a lie. That's one of his tactics. He wants to convince you that God isn't trustworthy. You can't count on him. You can't give him your life. He's not good enough. He's not great enough. And Satan can do what God either can't or won't. You need to understand that from the start. You need to express not only in your heart, but I think in your just verbally proclaiming over your life the truth, I have been given all authority over the power of the enemy and nothing will hurt me. And then I think you just have to pray. I think, for example, Psalm 119, verse 18, where David said, open my eyes that I might behold wonderful things in your word. When people read scripture, do they start out by saying, Lord, open my eyes, give Ephesians 1, enlighten the eyes of my heart that I might have the spirit of wisdom and revelation and knowing my hope in Christ and who I am and what he has done for me. So I think those kinds of, that, that kind of focused, intentional prayer in which we're crying out to the spirit, give me eyes to see, silence the voice of the enemy. Let me, give me the discernment to recognize when he's speaking as over against when you're speaking. I think this has to be the, the beginning place for for all of this. I remember, you know, of Paul's counsel to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.7, he said, God will give, he said, think over the things that I say, because God will give you understanding. So you have to first think, you have to, you have to apply yourself to mm -hmm. what God has said in the scripture with a confident expectation that he's going to give you understanding. And with that understanding comes the renewal of our minds that Paul talks about in Romans 12, 
in the transformation of our hearts. Thank you so much. I would love it if you would just close in prayer over that person that is wrestling with this and, and wanting to believe that there is freedom for them. Absolutely. Father, I thank you for every individual who's listening to, to these few minutes we've had together today. And I, Lord, I pray, first of all, that you would strengthen them by your spirit in their inner being. As Paul prayed in Ephesians 3, strengthen the Lord because they're feeling weak and they don't know the height and depth and width and breadth of the love that you have for them in Christ. And Lord, if they're even saying right now, when they hear me say those words, God can't do that. Nobody can do that. And just think of how that prayer ends. To him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power at work in us through Jesus Christ. Lord, do that for them right now. Awaken them to the reality of the spiritual battle. Impress upon their hearts that they do have a vicious, scheming, highly intelligent, very powerful enemy who wants to destroy them. But we have a greater power. Greater is he who is in us, 1 John 4, than he who is in the world. So I pray that they would not be filled with fear, but rather with wisdom, not with cowardice, but rather with confidence in the authority that they have in Jesus, and that they would begin to realize that there is so much more that you have for them, that the enemy does not want them to see or taste or even go near. Would you awaken them to this reality through your word, through your spirit, and give them the strength and the courage to cry out to you that they might move forward, they might go deeper, they might experience your power and your presence in a very tangible, life-changing way. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey guys, Chloe here. Wasn't that conversation absolutely incredible? It was definitely one of those episodes that I'm going to have to go back and play a few times. But if you want to learn more about Sam, if you want to connect with him and learn more about the books that he's written, I'll put all the links in the show notes for you guys. Uh, His most recent book is called Understanding Spiritual Warfare. And I can say I highly recommend it. I've only made it probably a quarter of the way through because I've had to read it so slow and take lots of notes. But I know you guys will find that helpful. And we just love that you listened today. Thank you so much for sharing this show with your friends, for sending people episodes to listen to. And we love when you subscribe, when you rate, and when you leave reviews because we love hearing from you. So thanks for listening today. We'll see you next time for another episode of the Made for This podcast. With everything you have on your plate, earning your degree online seems impossible. But at Grand Canyon University, we specialize in helping you fit a master's degree in education into your busy day. Your graduation team, led by your own GCU counselor, provides you with the personal support you need to succeed. Achieve your goals with a plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu. You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. 
LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of $15,178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. You've worked hard for what you have. Your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply.